What's up, everybody? I'm JJ John J. Stramski. And I'm Jason Goff. And if you haven't heard, The Ringer has gone local. I'm bringing the fire. I'm bringing the rain from the Big Apple with my show, New York, New York. And I'm repping Chi-Town with my new show, The Full Go on All Things Chicago. We've got episodes three nights a week with all the reaction to the local teams and guests. Plus bonus episodes around all the big games and storylines. So whether you're uptown, downtown, in the burbs, or a transplant. Make sure you follow New York, New York, and The Full Go on Spotify or wherever you get your podcast. It's the Ringer Gambling Show, presented by FanDuel. The road to the NBA Finals starts now, and FanDuel is the best place to get in on the action. Right now, you can check out the new and improved Quick Bets, which are back, and better than ever for the NBA playoffs on FanDuel. Find what you're looking for faster and easier with more props right at your fingertips. You can check out live bets like 3-Minute Markets and exclusive live bets like quarter player props, player assist combos, and more. So download the app today and bet with FanDuel, official partner of the NBA. The Ringer is committed to responsible gaming. Please visit rg-help.com to learn more about the resources and helplines available and listen to the end of the episode for additional details. Must be 21 plus, 18 plus, and present in select states. Gambling problem? Call 100Gambler and visit rg-help.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Monday edition of the Ringer Gambling Show. We are joined today, as we always are on a Monday edition, by Chris Vernon. We are going to recap another huge week of NFL Week 5 action, the first London game, and a massive shift in the balance of power in the AFC. Chris, what did you think of that game last night between the Bills and the Chiefs? Yeah, so I guess you're going to say the balance of power switch last night. Uh, This was revenge, and you heard last night on the broadcast, I thought it was interesting that the Bills talked so much openly with the broadcasters, clearly, about how everything in their offseason was thinking about losing that game last year. They talked about Diggs staying on the field to watch them get the trophy. And it got you got this feeling that this was so much bigger for the Bills than it was for the Chiefs. And then, of course, you have this crazy scenario where the game takes forever because there's an hour and a half long delay in the middle of it for weather where Mike Tirico and Tony Dungy and Drew Brees are trying to kill time for an hour and a half so they could get back to playing. But I mean, that is a mega impressive win for the bills on the road in a Sunday night game. And for a team that talks so openly about caring so deeply about this particular matchup and thinking that this is the team that they're going to have to beat not only this year, but in the future, um, I think you've got to take away that they certainly uh, they achieved their goal, at least for one night last night. How big a deal do you think that was? Well, the way the Bills are taking the season is one game at a time. And this game was the next game up, but it obviously was the most important game of the season to that point. Now, they're going to tell you that every single game that they're about to go into is the most important game of the season to that point. And the fact that they dropped that first game of the season was big to them. It's big from a home field advantage perspective. Uh, You definitely do have the LA Chargers that are absolutely looking like the real deal in the AFC that they're going to have to contend with with home field advantage as well. You mentioned that this game seemed to be more important for the Bills. It needed to be more important for the Chiefs. Uh, The Chiefs, this is their third home game of the season and they lost their prior one. They were 2-2 two and two on the season after going to the Super Bowl last year and losing and returning in the offseason when they added the 17th game and being on record as saying, we want to be the first team in the NFL to go 17-0. and 0. I thought in trying to spin it in a positive direction for the Chiefs that their loss to the Baltimore Ravens at the last second would at least get rid of all the pressure that they might have been facing to go 17-0 and because that's a brutal thing for anybody to try to do and it's not going to be helpful to enter the playoffs think or, or to try to go down the rest of the 
end of your regular season with all that stress on you to be the first perfect team that goes 17 and 0 and then have to go through a long playoff run. So I was like, okay, maybe it's not the worst thing in the world for them to drop a game against the Ravens. But then they lose the next game as well. And this was a game I thought that the Chiefs needed to win and they dropped. So the Bills, yes, this was a game they circled and you're 100% right. You know, we talked about it, I think, even on the show last week, but definitely with with uh, Solak and definitely with House. This was a game that the Bills had been building for from a personnel perspective, because in order to be the best, you got to beat the best. And there's no way that you're going to be able to go to the AFC championship without knocking off the Kansas City Chiefs. They're the team that is going to be most likely to be in your path that you have to beat. And. So the, they developed their team and designed their team this whole offseason for this moment. And I thought it would have been a bigger loss for them than it would be for the Chiefs because like all their focus and design this offseason was for this game. But I was just shocked at how the Chiefs came out in this game, Chris, and 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 were unable to do anything that they needed to do or wanted to do offensively. It was as if they weren't prepared that the Bills were going to play too deep and make you go short little gains up the field. And they had no counterpunch. Like even at the end of the game, when you're losing big time, they had no way to get back in the game quickly. And I was talking to a guy that I work on the betting side of things with last night during the course of the game in that second half. And what just stood out to me is that when you are down and you are unable to get the big chunks because of the way the defense is playing, you better speed it the shit up. Like you better, you better operate at lightning speed because there's no way you're going to get back into the game nickel and diming your way down the field unless you're going lightning speed. And it's like they had no real way to make the adjustments to to do that. I thought that was, frankly, I mean, I love Andy Reid as a coach. I thought that was one of his most poorly coached games from a game plan perspective. It's like what to approach the game with and then an adjustment perspective as to what to do in game. All right. How about devil's advocate on this regarding the Chiefs that maybe it is just going to be a problem for them in terms of turning the ball over. But again, a massive turnover number and they're losing this category in these losses. Um, and you, you even chronicled, I saw you tweeting about as they were talking about last night, like this team wasn't even getting first uh, fourth downs throughout the season. They weren't even getting to fourth down. So their offense hums along unless they turn it over. There was a lot of talk last night about how crappy their defense is and that is so. They certainly put more pressure on that defense when they turn the ball over. But is it just a case that the offense is still amazing and they just basically have to be amazing every week in or uh, against the good teams in order for them to win because we and they can outscore you. The problem is they can't outscore anybody if they're going to turn the ball over four times. No, uh, that is that is true. Uh, Patrick Mahomes cannot be throwing these interceptions, and and I know it's not every single one of them is his fault, right? You got, if you're, if you're Tyree Kelly, you just got to catch the damn ball. I mean, like it's going right through your hands on that pick six. Um, but from like the strategy of football is what, most excites me like the 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 chess match that's involved when two top teams get together and and what's so interesting about this game is i talked about the ability to adapt and adjust but also the game plan entering the game and so yes if you if you turn the ball over you're going to lose football games that's point blank period even if you're a great team and i still believe that the Kansas City Chiefs have an offense that's going under discussed in general but they did not have a very good strategy entering this game. On the flip side, look at what the Buffalo Bills did entering this game and how much different what they did was last night compared to the AFC Championship game. Last night, the Buffalo Bills offense majored in tight end targets, quarterback runs, running back runs, and running back passes. These are things that they were not, they did not do any of this shit. They did not have a single snap of 10 personnel. That's four wide receivers out on the field. 
they had no snaps of that. I have to go back and count how many snaps they had a 21 personnel with a fullback out on the field. They came into Arrowhead with a totally different mindset offensively. We are going to beat you the way that we should play to beat you, not the way that we like to normally play at home against a shitty team. Right. I think it's fair to say it worked if uh, Josh Allen was averaging 30 yards of completion in the first half. He w- he he was absolutely absurd from the deep passing element of this game and just getting guys behind the secondary, the blown coverages. Um, but what they did in this game, Chris, was look at what the Chiefs struggled to defend and do those things, even though they're not the things that we normally major in. Right. And that's the sign of a team that is very dangerous because if you are game planning and can beat teams using, I, I always call it like, the, what is the fastest method to beat this opponent? Like, we, we know we're good at these things, but but what's the fastest way to beat this other team? Okay, let's try to adapt what we do to beat them that way because that's going to give us the quickest way to win. Not, not doing the things that we do the best necessarily. What's the things that are going to work the best against that opponent? And I mean... Even though the running back runs, like they don't have the best offensive line to run the football with, and they don't have the best running backs in the league, but they were able to throw the running back runs in there a lot more and do it a little bit more confidently than they've done in the past. And of course, their two leading receivers from a yardage perspective, tight end Dawson Knox and Zach Moss, a running back. So like this team was just so atypical the way that they beat them. And then they were able to get the pressure with four. They were able to get guys. They did not blitz one single time. They knew defensively that the way Patrick Mahomes excels is when you blitz him and then he destroys it. He's the best quarterback in the league against the blitz. And that's why the Ravens typically struggle against them. The Ravens game plan this uh, last game to not blitz Patrick Mahomes either. And something totally different than what they typically do. And that had some success. The Bills did the same thing, except the difference was the Bills were able to get a little bit more pressure and played a little bit better underneath, which was crazy when you thought of the pregame injury report because Matt Milano, their best coverage linebacker, their best off-ball linebacker, was out this game. And so it was like, okay, Travis Kelsey's absolutely going to be able to eat. And Travis Kelsey only has six catches in this game. He does score a touchdown, but I mean, he did not make the difference that he made in the AFC Championship game. I thought all, all overall for this one, Chris, massive statement win for the Bills, but in a massive disappointment for the Chiefs um, that, that I know it felt bigger for the Bills. It should have felt just as big for the Chiefs. And I felt like they came out and laid a massive egg here. And sitting at two and three, and looking up at the Chargers who are four and one, and then looking up at the Bills who are four and one, and looking at that Bills rest of their schedule the rest of the way, like Buffalo has a lot of power now in the AFC, and the Chargers have more power than the Chiefs obviously do, though their remaining schedule is more difficult. Um, and I just, I just think that I was very impressed by the manner in which the Bills strategized for this victory and the doubt that that's got to give other teams in the AFC with what exactly are they going to come at us with on a week-to-week basis. Do you know the last thing I'll make? You know the Buffalo Bills have recorded 21st downs in every single game that they've played since the start of the 2020 season. Wow. That, that that I think that's a record nobody else has ever done in in NFL history. I have to go back and look, but I think that's 21 uh, consecutive games that they've recorded 20 plus first downs. It's it's been a pretty amazing uh, offense to watch uh, unfold. That is incredible. Uh, they were the biggest underdog cover. The second biggest underdog cover, if I've got this right, was the Bears who are now starting Justin Fields. They were a five and a half point underdog. They end up winning that game by double digits yesterday. So what is the story of the Bears being uh, the second biggest underdog cover yesterday? I think, okay, there's two two ways to attack this. We could either discuss the fact that um, I'm so glad that Matt Nagy is allowing Bill Lazor to operate this offense because Matt Nagy seemed 
completely clueless on how to utilize Justin Fields. And now two weeks in a row that Bill Lazor is calling things, we saw production. But I don't want to get too carried away with that because overall, this offense still only put up 20 points, right? Like they didn't have to do much in the fourth quarter. They were up 14 to three at halftime. And mid third quarter, that felt like an insurmountable lead, as as sad as that might sound. Like it, it felt like a lead that the Raiders were never going to get back into. So I feel like that's the bigger storyline in this one is, is just the Raiders' inability to perform offensively. And we saw that for the second week in a row. The first half against the Chargers last week, the Raiders put up zero points. The first half against the Bears this week, the Raiders put up three points. And you felt like the Raiders were without, I mean, sorry, the Bears defense was without Akeem Hicks, who is like the single biggest difference maker on that defense. If you look at with and without and the production that that defense allows, I mean, it's a massive loss for them. And the Raiders still could not run the football, which they struggle to run. They're normally like such a one-dimensional passing team um, that they need to be throwing the football. But what what was shocking to me is like the lack of production. This team had some decent production on first down, the Raiders did. Second and third down, they were absolutely horrendous. And they just could not, they, they did not have any consistency. And Derek Carr continues to struggle under pressure. And I know he like mocked uh, Joey Bosa for the comments that Joey made after the game last week about, yeah, he would turtles up after you get pressure on him and ha 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 we were able to do that and Derek Carr took it defensively but it's a known fact in league league wide that this guy does that and the Bears were able to get some pressure on him and he once again struggled to throw the football so um yeah could, could, yeah let me let, let me ask you about this Warren because as someone who is an extremely prolific uh sports gambling guy in 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 that, you know, this is what you do when you see, and we had two instances this past week where there was massive off the field news for teams that unfortunately involved their coaches. You had on one hand, the Urban Meyer deal where, you know, players are talking about it. You know, players are getting asked about it. It is a distraction. There's no way around it. On the other hand, the Gruden thing breaks late in the week, and it becomes the story of the Raiders. It's not about what they've done this season. It's not about their game coming up with the Bears. When people talked about the Raiders, all they talked about was the John Gruden email from 2011. And so players inevitably are going to be talking about it. Uh, media is going to be talking about it. Like that is the subject around the Raiders. And so I know that you're always diving deep into the numbers, but when you see things like that, how do you take that into consideration regarding like the mental state of a team? Is there, it's impossible to quantify, but if you did particularly like a game or you saw a number that intrigued you, if you see something like that come out and you know that the story of a team is something off the field, does it back you off of a game? Do you then not just look at the numbers in terms of trying to figure out how a game could play out? What, what do you make of it? Because I think, and, and again, it might not be, you might not be giving proper credit to the Titans this week. You might not be giving proper credit to uh, the Bears this week for their outcomes. But I think it's fair to say people will take a step back and go, I mean, you really thought the Jags were going to win after the Urban Meyer crap? You really thought the Raiders were going to be able to just uh, get it all together after all that John Gruden crap comes out? What, what do you make of it? And then how you view it through the prism of handicapping a game? Yeah. Um, so for something that's like the Raiders issue, uh, what, what day did that leak? Like Thursday or yeah, something late like in the week. So, yeah, so it was late in the week and John Gruden already had implemented, uh, his game plan, the strategy for approach, like you all that stuff's already in there. And so 
it's just practice at that point. You're practicing what your plan is uh, for going into the game. So I don't know that like it, it, it definitely becomes like a media distraction, but I don't know that it was a massive like on the field. Okay, we're not the players aren't going to give as much effort or man, this is this is such a distraction. We couldn't game plan for this game properly. We didn't know what we were doing. That type. Of I thing. just think it's what the players think about because they have to think about it. Yeah, I mean, you know I, what I'm saying I, I, I definitely get you. I think that if you have something that um, I like the Bears going into this game, I didn't think that that was the reason that the Raiders offense didn't look quite as good Mm -hmm. um, or like the players weren't giving quite as much effort. Now, the Jaguars thing, that was a bigger issue, I believe, although the wise guys were still on the Jaguars in that game, um, taking them plus the points late in the week. um, That was an issue that, messed up some of the game planning, right? Because that unfolded at the beginning of the week, like what on Tuesday that leaked out, or maybe it was even Monday, I'm not sure, but that stuff leaked out. And then that's going to impact the coaches from implementing their game plan. And they're going to have to address it as soon as the team comes back from you know their day off or whatever they have. And so that is that does present a bigger issue that's more of a distraction over the course of your preparation to get ready for um, your next opponent. Once again, I don't think that the players, maybe they are, I don't know the state of the Jags locker room quite as good as some of the other teams, but um, I don't know that like that particular game, they're like, okay, fuck this staff, fuck this season, I'm out, like I don't care any anymore about this. The stuff, the, the bigger coaching things, I think that factor into handicapping and change game results are are, I think like maybe three different things. The first one would be uh, when, I'll I'll give you an example, like the Bills last year having to play the Tennessee Titans on a Tuesday because Tennessee had a COVID outbreak and the Bills don't know if they're going to actually go down there for that game. And, And mind you, that's Monday Night Football next week, the rematch of this game. The Bills are sitting on the tarmac waiting to get confirmation from the league that the game is actually going to be played. Meanwhile, like the day before that, the Bills are starting to game plan for their next opponent um, because they don't even know if they're going to be actually playing this game against the Titans. So that type of thing, although it comes out later in the week, does mess you up from like, what are you focused on? Who are you trying to beat right now? Are you trying to beat the Titans in eight hours after you take off from a flight? Or should we start thinking about the Chiefs who we're going to play the very next week at home? So that's that's one. The second one would be your team is just loss after loss after loss and you hate your coach, right? Like what kind of happens with the Lions or the Jets maybe and and like can you get a win? Can you are you going to be up for this spot after you just won a game uh because you it was your first win of the season? Those types of things uh, I think are a factor. And then the third one would just be uh, so that's like more the uh, snowballing effect of bad locker rooms, bad culture, bad chemistry. Eventually, it's going to show itself in effort from the players, not just on the field, but like from a studying perspective. And your coach keeps putting you in bad situations. Like, are you tuning him out a little bit as in the game plan? Um, do, you, do you hate the game plans going into it? Um, and then the third one is just like a distraction in preparation, like kind of what you saw with the Urban Meyer thing, um, where your coaches just aren't ready to prepare you the best way. And the players are thinking about something else. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's a factor. Uh, I won't say that it's absolutely not a factor, Chris. It's hard to, it's very difficult to, uh, put a value to that from a point spread perspective. Yeah. I just, I just think like, you know, the coach is sitting there having to go sit in there and meet with the owner, Right. You know, like they, these are atypical things that happen during a game week right now. Yeah. Like I said, if that Gruden thing happened on like Monday or Tuesday, I think that would have taken time away from him, like implementing the game plan, uh, a PR frenzy on like a Thursday or a Friday, um, doesn't necessarily take as much away is all I will say, mm-hmm. but it's still a factor. Yep. It's still, it's still a problem. Of course. Yeah. You even saw, I mean, and you even saw last night when we're watching the Sunday night game, they weren't talking about what the what the Raiders did right, what the Raiders did wrong. It was we're going to talk about uh, you know all the pregame shows, and then last night it we're going to talk about John Gruden and this email. That's what they're talking about. The, the The subject isn't football. 
You right. know, as much as much as you want to try to make it uh, football, if you're one of these teams where the topic is typically for most of these teams. Let me ask you about some of the uh, the biggest covers. You know, you're obviously thrilled if you bet the Bucks. You were thrilled if you bet the Cowboys uh, because the Bucks were uh, 11 point favorites. They end up winning their game by 28. The Cowboys were seven point favorites. They end up winning their game by 24. Um, and the Cowboys streak of against the spread continues this year. Um, what do you make of those and the fact that the numbers were ended up being so off? Yeah, I mean, I think I think with the Dolphins, that was another side that some of the wise guys were on, like looking to try to fade Tom Brady and 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 the Bucks there after the huge game, of course, uh up in New England in the rain the prior week. Um, but you know, Jacoby Brissett uh, and that Dolphins team, they were without their top two receiving options. And I mean, Brian Flores' defense really wasn't able to confuse, that's that's an understatement, confuse Tom Brady enough um, to cause them problems. And so there were some big plays in that game. I, I mean, the story, typically when you have big covers, like Dallas had a huge cover, um, you know, in that game, Dallas got the cover in part because all the key players for the Giants got injured and left the game. And so what was amazing to me, I tweeted out at the time, it was, uh, what were we at? It was in the second half of that game and the Giants were without Daniel Jones, Saquon Barkley, obviously Kenny Galladay, Sterling Shepard, and Darius Slayton, and are down only four points to Dallas in the second half. And that was some bad luck because Dallas had, you know, I don't think they had punted to that point. Maybe they had punted one time to that point. They had a, field goal. They had an interception. They had a fumble at the Giants five. They could have been up by a little bit more, but they weren't. Um, and then all those guys got knocked out of the game. But then you have some big plays, right? Like some big plays open up. And that was obviously the story of we're going to talk about momentarily, like the biggest game to go over the point total. But um, yeah, I mean, I I wasn't on any of these, but the, the, the Cowboys, uh, sorry, the Giants plus seven was a play that some of the sharp money was on. Definitely the Dolphins plus 10 and a half. And then the Bills, the Bills, the sharp money was all over Buffalo in that spot. So the public was on that money a little bit for the Bills and got like a nice, easy cover. Um, but uh, that was funny because, you know, the tide has obviously turned against Kansas City. When was the last time they covered a game? I mean, they have not been covering games in forever. And so that information sort of jumped the shark a little bit. And the public wasn't quite as scared of the Chiefs as they've been in the past. The bookmaker even set like a super low number on here. And the public was still not just wanting to lay two and a half, three with the Chiefs. They were like, okay, I'll just take a field goal with the Bills. And, you know, there was some notion that what Buffalo was doing to prior teams was like fraudulent because these other teams sucked. They had no quarterbacks. Now you got to go up against Patrick Mahomes. Uh, they had, you know, mediocre to bad defenses anyway. So what you're pointing up on a scoreboard isn't really that impressive. Like you should be doing that. Um, but, but absolutely going in there and stomping on the chiefs the way they did and covering the spread that easily, uh, was, was, was certainly notable. That's the one game where the public, uh, you know, the, the public, I guess the public money on all three of those, um, came home. And let me ask you about that bucks game real quickly. And just on the other side, because this has been the season from hell, for the Dolphins. They lost two at the very beginning of the year. You talked about some of their wideouts being out. But I was reading this morning, the Dolphins' defense, um, of course, yesterday gave up 558 yards. They are allowing 422 yards a game, which is the third worst in the NFL. And they're allowing 31 points a game, which is the third worst in the NFL. Their offense is averaging 261 yards, which is the second worst in the NFL. 15.8 points, which is the second worst in the NFL. So they have the second worst offense and the third worst defense through the first five weeks of the season. And I don't know if, I, 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 if you ask me, do the Dolphins suck? I would say, well, I mean, they certainly haven't played all that well, but I don't think of them as the lowest of the low. But these statistical performance. I mean, this is pitiful, Warren. And you, it's one of those teams where it doesn't feel like auto-fade material 
at this point. But then when I read those numbers, I'm like, good grief. They got a bottom three offense and they got a bottom three defense. And then I see that, I mean, they're favored next week against the Jaguars. <laughs> Here, here's the craziest stat from that game to me, Chris. What if I were to tell you that the Miami Dolphins ran 51 offensive plays and they only were forced into seven third downs? Only seven the entire game. Would you think that that's a pretty good performance by the Miami Dolphins? Only seven third down attempts the entire game? Yes. And and yet and yet they were blown out. And yet they were blown out in that game. Uh, attempting only seven third downs is terrible. They were quite efficient on early downs. Um, they just were not productive at all. They had a f- interception, a fumble, and you know early downs look good. Third downs were terrible. Um, only two of seven on third downs. They were they were the short passing game, exactly what you want to do against a defense like the Bucs. Don't try to run the football that much. Throw the football. Um, the issue, though, and I don't even know, let's pretend Tua is healthy. And let's pretend Tua actually is more impressive than people thought entering the season. Let's pretend he he has a good season. With a defense like this, it's hard to say what you're even going to get out of the Miami Dolphins. You're absolutely right. I don't know what's going on with this Brian Flores-led defense but they're crumbling and it's got to be completely disheartening for the team that I think it's the manner in which this stuff is happening, right? Like you lose to the Indianapolis Colts by 10, by double digits, right? By double digits. You obviously get shut out against the Buffalo Bills and, and Tua is hurt in that game. And so, okay, fine. That's a loss, whatever. The Bills are great. But then you drop a game to the Raiders, then you lose by double digits to the Colts, and now you get absolutely obliterated by the Bucs for three straight losses. And this was a team that thought that they had their franchise quarterback in Tua and had all these picks that they were spending and like we're attacking the draft and, you know, we're playing the money ball strategy of acquiring the draft picks. They still have a bunch for this next upcoming draft, but like they were setting themselves up to, you know, with the rookie quarterback build towards winning during his rookie deal window. And now it's like, we have to reevaluate everything. And so I think that this got to be pretty disheartening for the franchise at its core. Well, two things for Tua, clearly the kid does not want to be hurt. And it's a lot of football that he's missed over the course of the last two and a half years. But let me just put myself in the, uh, in the mindset of Tua. If I'm him, I'm sitting there going, hey, I ain't so bad after all, huh? So number one, you being out, it makes you look better just because your team is horrendous without you. Whether whether you would make a massive difference or not, your team's been pitiful without you. And the second thing is, every week you're out is another week that people don't bring up damn Justin Herbert because... This has gotten ludicrous as we pivot to this, Warren. And the pressure that it then puts on the Trevor Lawrences and the Mac Jones and the Justin Fields and the Trey Lances, like what that kid did his rookie year. And now as we pivot to this second year of Justin Herbert is absolutely insane. And it should not be the bar for anybody that drafts a quarterback (laughs) because, I mean, honestly, I don't want to overreact here, Warren, but as we talk about this Chargers-Browns game and anybody that watched that game, how many guys are off the board before you take him? Like, if I just lined up all quarterbacks in the NFL and I said, all right, we're having a draft. There's no way he goes past, what, five? No way. He's easily one of the first five guys taken. If you're doing a, I, and I'm not talking about for the future. I'm talking about right now. This guy is unbelievable. And you spoke earlier about how much you love watching chess matches. This was an absolute offensive showcase between the Chargers and uh, 
and, and the Browns. And they do it kind of two different ways with the Browns being so devastating with that run game and the Chargers being so devastating with the passing game. Give me your takes on Herbert and also uh, that game that we ended up seeing 89 total points in. What was funny in that game, I mean, so there's a lot of totals uh, historically that were set right around 41 points. And and that's what that game saw in the fourth quarter. 41 total points scored. I mean, that game <laughs> that game only had 10 points at the end of the first quarter. That game was sitting at 40 points with uh halfway through the third quarter. There was only 40 points scored. Uh there was only 48 points scored in that game with almost 5 minutes into the fourth quarter. There was only 48 points scored. And then it was just 42-yard touchdown, 71-yard touchdown, like back-to-back, basically, and then the thing just exploded. Um, That's one of those fourth quarters that was like, it's such a close game, and both offenses can score that when one team's up by a touchdown in the fourth quarter, you feel so much pressure to like, okay, boom, empty the tank here, let's get a touchdown. Then the other team, I mean... It was ridiculous. Um, you know what? It's crazy. It reminded me. I don't know how, how much college football you watch, but if you watched Ole Miss Arkansas on Saturday, they just kept the the fourth quarter. It was like, all right, whoever gets the ball last. And in fact, Ole Miss scored with like a minute left to go, and Arkansas went down, scored, I saw and that. had a chance to get a two point conversion. It was the damnedest thing. It was like, all right, neither of these teams are going to stop each other. So who's getting the ball at the end? And then you flip. And it was like, and same thing with Texas, Oklahoma. That was on Saturday. But you don't typically see this in NFL games where you just feel like, all right, neither of these teams have any chance of stopping each other. So who's getting the ball at the end? Yeah. And in this game, actually, I like the under. And, you know, the, <laughs> oh, no! the Chargers the Chargers scored no more than a touchdown in every single quarter up until the fourth quarter. So there's seven points in the first quarter, six points in the second quarter, and eight points in the third quarter. And up to that point in time, the what I was thinking, my fear in that game with wanting to like the with, with liking the under was the Browns are going to I don't think the Chargers are going to stop the Browns on the ground. And my concern is that Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt have explosive gains on the ground and they're able to just like keep moving the football down the field. And then the Chargers with Brandon Staley are never going to punt the football. They're never going to want to kick the ball. They're always going to keep trying to go for it. And so they would be able to match them and put up the points. And that sort of ended up playing true in the first half of the game. The Browns obviously were up entering the fourth quarter. What was it? It was uh 27 the Browns had 27 points and it was 27 to 13 um, at one point, like midway through the third quarter. And so at that point in time, you know, the 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 Chargers are this team, Chris, and like Solak and I talk a lot about it on the Wednesday show, that could operate at the level they do in the fourth quarter. Now we'll talk momentarily about all the blown defensive stuff, but could operate like they do in the fourth quarter, but they never do because they just want to play small ball. It's like they've got the restrictor plate on Justin Herbert for no good reason, and they just refuse to allow him to open himself up in the first quarter, in the second quarter. It's like they want to play in these close games, and that will cause them problems down the road. It obviously forced them to fall into a deficit like this, um, where they were down 27 to 13. And so then it's like, okay, now what? Well, let's just let Justin Herbert do whatever he does. Like, let's just let him throw the football all the time on these early downs and get the ball down the field and stop running it and stop throwing the ball close to the line of scrimmage and just push the ball down the field with this guy's arm, roll him out of the pocket, let him deliver. And that's what they started doing late in the game. And obviously they went from scoring 13 points um, midway through the third quarter to finishing with 47, um, them getting back in the game. So, uh, from my perspective, the game played out the way that I was sort of expecting it to at the beginning um, and that I was fearful of with the run plays, gaining a little bit too much ground for the Browns. But what we couldn't have happened from a total perspective is the Browns to get a large lead here on the Chargers. What we ideally wanted, and actually 
I kind of liked a tease of the Browns. I didn't do it. I teased a couple other games successfully, but I kind of liked the tease of the Browns here. Um, but the wise guys were on the Chargers in this spot. The, the, the sharp money liked the Chargers to have success here. And if the Chargers were having more success earlier and they didn't fall in such a deficit, we never get this finish like this. We never see Justin Herbert open things up and we never see it like that. Um, but the game just played out through the first like three and a half quarters such that like it was almost inevitable that we were going to see something like that in the fourth quarter. But it's certainly wild to see it actually unfold. And what I couldn't believe is two top 10 defenses leaving guys wide open down the field in the first. But <laughs> the game is on the line. It's the fourth quarter. And I know the Browns got a bunch of defensive injuries throughout the course of that game. Um, and so they were short manned and under undermanned in the in the late stages. But I mean, that was just uh that was absurd. And then it was funny to watch at the end how the they tried to bring in uh, Austin Eckler to score the touchdown. I mean, that's smart. This is what I tweeted out. Like, this is what you get when you have the two smartest kids in class playing chess against each other. One team wants to just kneel the ball down. They should have just kneeled it down instead of attempting a run play. The other team's going to push you into the end zone because they know it's the only chance for them to get back in the game. I saw when I was watching their game a couple of weeks ago, um, they were talking about the the offensive coordinator for the Chargers, uh, Joe Lombardi, and the job that he had done with that team so far. And also, one of the, one of the things they mentioned was the ex-receiver in his offense and how this could bode well. This was at the beginning of the season. This could really bode well for Mike Williams because you look at other guys that have played that ex-receiver in Joe Lombardi's offense, and my God, the season, <laughs> when we talk about like what kind of impact can a hire have, what kind of impact can coaching have? I mean, that's at the beginning of the year. They were saying, hey, this could be really good, you know, clearly for Keenan Allen and for Herbert. But the guy that this could really benefit is Joe Lombardi because the X receiver in his offense has just put up some crazy stats in the past. And I'll be damned. Mike Williams has monster numbers, like just ludicrous so far this season, as has Herbert. And, and let me just uh, go back real quickly. When I was saying it doesn't get past five, I mean, look, you got Brady Rogers, Mahomes, Allen. And then if you want to fight over Dak, Kyler, Russ, Herbert, I mean, you can. But I think that <laughs> if, if you watch Herbert yesterday, I'm trying not to be prisoner of the moment, but I, I cannot believe how awesome he is in in the first. I mean, it's the first twenty starts or whatever it is. It's still he's still within the first twenty five starts of his career, and the guy is watch the throws he makes. If I told you that that guy is a second year NFL quarterback, you would you would think I'm nuts. Yeah, well, and the, and the list you rattled off, I think it was like Brady, Mahomes, Allen. Yeah, they're all the top older. Of that, the, those guys are well, all most. in their second, third plus year deals. Oh, uh, sorry, yeah. contracts. And so when you factor in that Justin Herbert is on a rookie deal, which is the cheapest yep. one possible, that gives a tremendous edge to the Chargers from a roster building perspective and the talent that they're capable of surrounding him with. And so the level of play that he's delivering, taking that into account, is insanity. He might be the uh, he might be the, the first, other thing. What did Mahomes get? He might be the first billion dollar quarterback by the time he gets his by the time he gets his deal. The, the thing that's frustrating me, Chris, though, is that is that like I saw all of obviously I didn't predict him to do this. Nobody predicted him to do this. But last year, when you're watching the Chargers, and I'm not talking about the end of the season, I'm talking about like week five, week six, week seven. All of us were looking at the tape, we're looking at his numbers. And we're like, God, Anthony Lynn, why are you not letting this guy work a little bit more? Look at how he's performing. And it became this massive frustration that you need to get a new coach to unlock Justin Herbert because this stuff, like you're not allowing him to do what he does best most of the game. And then you get this new staff in here. And I got to tell you, Chris, I mean, this is where it's kind of like the Pete Carroll curse or the Sean McVay curse uh, with Jared Goff and to some extent. And it's like, 
we're winning games. So you think that your process is right because the wins are there. Um, and the same with the Chargers, they're four and one. But like when they need to do more earlier in these games with Justin Herbert so that they're not needing to win so closely. And I think you got an interesting statistic about the number of extra points that they've missed. But like you can't come down to kickers or kicks when you got a quarterback like Justin Herbert and you got and you're paying him pennies compared to the rest of the league. You've got to utilize Justin Herbert to his full extent early in games to build up big leads. You can't be down 27 to 13. You got to be up in these games and force the other teams to try to come back on your defense. You mentioned, I just want to mention in passing, you mentioned poor Jared Goff and, and, and I feel terrible for the Lions and the manner that they've lost. But yesterday, hey, look, yesterday, I don't know how many people are watching this game. So the game's about to go on. They show, you know how they always show the players and then there's like, you know, they put their stats like at the bottom of the screen or something like that, right? Um, so they got Jared Goff and he's out there like warming up before the game. And this on Fox, the stat they put for Jared Goff at the bottom of the screen, it said Jared Goff. And then I think it was like 0-12 or something like that. It was, has never won a game when Sean McVay was not his coach. And I was like, Jesus, like, what? that's the stat you put up for the guy? And then to watch him play out yesterday, no wonder Dan Campbell is crying. But I couldn't believe that. He said he's never won a football game that Sean McVay was not his coach. I mean, in the NFL, obviously, he won some games in college. But I was like, of all the stats to put up under the guy, can't you find anything like remotely positive? What a dick move. Yeah, so for people that don't know, for people that think that Jared Goff was drafted by Sean McVay, he he wasn't. He had his rookie season before right. Sean McVay got yeah, there. Yeah, all right. So he got inserted into that rookie season. I don't think he started his first week, but he got inserted into that rookie season. The team was terrible. Sean, they fired their coach. Sean McVay takes over. Uh, and then, of course, now he's in Detroit. So it was his rookie season and and so far this season. Crazy, right? Yeah. All right, so back to the Chargers, and you were talking about the number, uh, and, and, and maybe you never know the, the way this stuff plays out, but it's something to monitor after five weeks. So I went and looked as I'm watching those games yesterday, and it felt like so many times I was looking at a score, and I'm like, Jesus, did they miss an extra point? And then checking game logs, and indeed they missed an extra point. And so I was like, are the numbers down this year? So there's 15 teams that have 100% on their extra point conversion percentage this year, okay? 15. Now, there are 15, uh, you know, the rest of the league, you know, is lower than 100%. But at the very bottom, you have the Chargers, 71% on extra points this year. So far, uh, Warren, and when we're talking about great teams and what they're going to be capable of going forward, it's something to monitor because the rest of the teams at the bottom, they're all crap teams or just not very good. You have Houston, uh, the Patriots who have struggled this year, the Jets, Jacksonville. Those are the other ones at the bottom. But all of those teams are 75% or worse on extra points. And so and and then so I went and checked. I'm like, is the number down? Last year, only one team ended the season 100% on extra points. And that was interestingly enough, the Miami Dolphins. They were 100% on conversions last year. But at the very bottom of the league was the Denver Broncos and the New York Jets. They were tied. They were 83%. Okay? That was the worst mark in the entire NFL was 83%. This year, we already have one, two, three, four, five, six teams that are under 83%. And as I mentioned, the Chargers at 71%. So you got some crazy stuff happening with these kicks and extra points. And we kind of, we can parlay that into what took place in Bengals Packers, which was just a, kicking shit fest one one quick note one quick note before we get into the kicking um 
is that in this Browns Chargers game, one of the big difference was differences was both teams were relatively efficient on early downs. In fact, the Browns were more efficient than the Chargers were throughout the course of that game. But when it got to third and fourth down, okay, the Browns got into third and fourth down, uh, third down, let's say, an average yards to go of 7.3. The average yards to go for the Chargers on third down was 7.2. So both right around the same yards to go on these third downs. The Browns averaged just 4.1 yards per play on third down. The Chargers, 11.6. So the Chargers are like explosive in these third downs and converting them. And then on fourth down, each team had three of them, I believe. Average yards to go, 4.3 for the Browns and 5.7 for the Chargers. So the Chargers were in a little bit more difficult situation. The Browns averaged one yard gained on those fourth downs where they needed 4.3. The Chargers, 13.7 yards on those plays. So the Chargers, explosive and higher efficiency on third and fourth down. The Browns did not work out for them on third and fourth down. With the kicks, you can't ever rely on a kicker. Um, I understand it's a, it's a tough thing mentally. It absolutely feels like the mental pressure on kickers has gotten worse and worse and worse. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what it is. You would think that like the sports psychology has grown and we should be able to have guys that have more of like an iron focus and not need to just crumble so much once they go off the rails a little bit or miss a kick here or there. I don't know. Maybe this is just like my sense, but because teams are kicking less often, um, some of these kickers, like their confidence just shatters. I mean, I remember back growing up, you got like the the guys that just never miss kicks almost. And and now there's there's still those guys that are really good at kicking, but it's just like there's there's so many guys that struggle to make these kicks in some big spots. And uh, absolutely that that Chargers Packers game was the game that felt the bangle, like Bengals 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 that Chargers Bengals game felt like a game that was <laughs> destined to end in a tie. Like it was never going to end. It was absolutely absurd, funny, hilarious uh, that all that unfolded with all these guys missing kicks. That was a game that the uh, I mentioned to House on Friday that I was told, you know, this could be a big surprise. Everybody likes the Packers in this game. The Bengals could be the big surprise. Now, I, I ended up teasing the Bengals to the Eagles. And so that that ended up winning. Uh, but if you just played the Bengals plus three, unfortunately, you deserve to cover there. In my opinion, you deserve to to do better than actually just pushing that game because that was that had to be brutal. You had so many chances to win the freaking thing outright. One other surprising outcome, if people were surprised at that game going to overtime, one of the other surprising outcomes was Pittsburgh Denver, simply because you know we all left Roethlisberger; he'd been left for dead. And the Steelers certainly, uh, they looked in jeopardy of not having a 500 or over season under Mike Tomlin for the first time ever and kind of rallied the troops and got that win. And that's even with uh, Teddy Bridgewater coming back for Denver. What do you make of what happened with the Steelers? And then what do we make of what's going on with Denver? Yeah, so... I think the latter is the more intriguing thing. I know a lot of people are going to say, oh, well, look at what Ben Roethlisberger did. And, you know, they were able to win that game and they had success. You know, I I, I hear you, but Ben Roethlisberger still um, did not deliver a great day overall. I know 253 and two touchdowns, but he had a blow uh, average completion percentage over expectation. He was negative on the day. Um, they were able to run. The, the bigger story for me in this game was, Denver's offense and Denver's defense. And I think what we're seeing here is Denver goes out and plays three teams to start the season, the Giants, the Jaguars, and the Jets. And this is why strength of schedule is very important, why we look at strength of schedule, why we account for it. And of course, they start 3-0, and look dominant. And then we're looking back on those three teams that they beat. 
especially when they got pummeled by the Baltimore Ravens 23 to 7. Doesn't sound that bad, but it was pretty lopsided. And I know that Teddy got knocked out of that game. Um, but you're looking at that one and you're like, okay, well, what what are we going to get out of Denver? Is Teddy going to be back? Because if it's Locke, I don't know if they can go into Pittsburgh and win. I know Pittsburgh's been terrible, but I don't know. And then Teddy gets upgraded. And so a lot of people are like, okay, Denver could win this game. Now they got Teddy back. Their defense, Chris, has struggled tremendously. Uh, and we're not even talking like two of the best offenses in the NFL, right? Like Pittsburgh's offense has struggled immensely this year. Uh, Baltimore's offense is down offensive linemen. They're down running backs. They don't even have running backs there. And this is a this is a beaten up team for the Baltimore Ravens as well. And if you look at their overall offensive efficiency, um, like they're 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 allowing these teams to be much more productive than they are against other opponents in terms of the Steelers and the and the Bank and the Baltimore Ravens. So my concern is with the defense of the Denver Broncos. That's Vic Fangio's side of the football. That the, the defense is relatively healthy right now. I know their offense had lost a couple of guards and they got those guys back and their wide receivers, they're down a number of wide receivers as well. And so the accumulation of those injuries is starting to pile up. But this team for the Denver Broncos, you know, they go up against the Raiders next week and then they got the Browns uh, and then they got the Cowboys a couple weeks after the Browns. So they're going to be going up against a couple of, you know, well above average offenses um, after they take on the Raiders here. And let's not forget the close of the season for Denver. They've got a week 11 bye. They close out the season with the Chargers and the Chiefs four times in their last seven games. So like this defense has to figure out what is going on there and button themselves up because you're about to play a schedule of offenses. Yeah, you're going to have your cupcakes in there here and there. You got a couple games against the Raiders. You do get to play the Lions at one point. Uh, you get to play the Washington football team who do have above average offense right now, but they're certainly not anything to scare you. Uh, you're going to be playing some really top tier offenses the rest of the way. You haven't actually played any top tier offenses to date. So very, very concerned for the for the state of the Broncos defense. Well, you know, they lost Josie Jewell at the, you know, he tore his peck, and that was one of their linebackers who's going to be out for the season. And then losing Chubb at the very beginning is a killer. You know, he had, kids already had to have ankle surgery. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it, going into the season, um, Maybe what they were bringing to the table defensively, personnel-wise, certainly has changed some uh, than what they have now. And and Chubb was certainly, by all, by all accounts, at the beginning of his, when he had that 12-sack rookie season, we thought, this is, they've drafted a superstar. You know, this is... They're going to be devastating, and, and losing him's a killer, but they have not, they have not performed. And I'll say this, Claypool is electric. I don't know why Roethlisberger doesn't just throw it to that guy all the time. The, the electric <laughs> guy on that team is Claypool. You get the ball in his hands, and and Najee can do some stuff too. He's putting up numbers every week. He is. He's been he's been pretty good for them. Um, as someone who's a Najee Harris fantasy owner, I've been rather pleased with his performance so far this year. Poor kid has to play every damn down, but uh, at least he's done something. But, but yeah, Roethlisberger still doesn't. He still doesn't look like any great shakes. Uh, let me ask you about tonight. Any thoughts on Ravens, Colts? Talk about two banged up teams. No, uh, no Quentin Nelson now. That was a devastating loss for uh, for the Colts and the Ravens. You know that's the last team on earth you want to go bitch about injuries to because they've got what nineteen guys that have been hurt this yeah, year or brutal. something like that. I mean, this is. Walking wounded playing against each other tonight. What do we make of it? Uh, you know, I think what we're going to see, the biggest thing that I'm looking for, the matchup I'm most interested to watch is Carson Wentz versus this unrelenting blitz that is going to get thrown at it. Uh, because I think that the Baltimore Ravens, one of the highest blitz rates in the NFL historically, uh, with their defense coordinator still this season, take out the game that they didn't blitz against Patrick Mahomes, this team's going to be sending pressure at Carson Wentz. And Carson Wentz was terrible dealing with pressure last year, terrible dealing with pressure so far this year. And uh, 
But the other side of the football is a little intriguing to me because we did see when the Colts played the Ravens last year during the regular season that they did have a little bit of an interesting way of trying to deal with Lamar Jackson and slowed him down a tiny bit in that game. He wasn't quite as explosive as he had been on the ground in prior games. Um, And so I'm really interested to see that matchup. Uh, I want to see what Lamar is able to do from a ball carrying perspective on the ground. Um, but yeah, I think this game, I think this game's going to be fun if you care about matchups. I don't know that it's going to offer the most excitement. Um, I don't know if it's going to be one of the best Monday night football games. Uh, but yeah, let's just not have another weather delay. How about that? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I mean, primarily I want to see in that last game, the longest run, the longest run that Lamar Jackson had was nine yards. Okay, so he had been like, you know, busting out for longer runs. He only averaged four and a half yards. Um, his he, he, he threw for no touchdowns. He was sacked a couple of times uh, the last time that they played the Colts. But the, the Baltimore Ravens won that game 24 to 10 in Indy last year. And the Colts had Phillip Rivers as their quarterback, you right. know, uh, in that game. Now, Phillip Rivers did not have a good game in that spot. He threw an interception. He threw no touchdowns. The Baltimore Ravens defense was able to get after them then. And that was in Indy with Phillip Rivers. Now it's Carson Wentz in Baltimore. <laughs> I mean, going to be fun to see how that one unfolds. All right. Warren, it is always a pleasure. Uh, I will be listening to you in Solak and you in house on Wednesday and Friday. And I'll talk to you next week. Sounds good, buddy. That'll do it. Thank you guys for listening. We will be back Wednesday, as Chris said, with Ben Solak. We're going to be reviewing all the film, pouring out the notebook from the data and analytics side to see if we can make some money off of what we saw. Special thanks to Chris Vernon for joining me, to Mike Wargon and Craig Holbrecht for producing the show. We will see you guys on Wednesday. <laughs>